Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Today, Edwige Danticard joins us by phone from her home in Miami. Scholastic recently published her YA novel, Untwine, about 16-year-old twins whose lives are shattered by a tragic encounter. Born in Haiti, Edwige is also the author of Breath, Eyes, Memory, Crick, Crack, and Brother, I'm Dying. She is an American Book Award winner, a National Book Award winner, and a MacArthur genius. I could go on. Edwidge, it's not every day that I talk to a genius. Well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really delighted that you can join us. I want to start with your novel, Breath, Eyes, Memory. And in it, you write, if you see a lot of trouble in your life, it is because you were chosen to carry part of the sky on your head. That seems to me to be an apt description of the painful history you have carried from Haiti to America. I wanted to ask you, how has writing helped you to make sense of that history and turn it into art? The history of of Haiti ended painful. I mean, it it is also triumphant. It goes through all these ups and downs. And I think as immigrants from Haiti, as an immigrant from Haiti, I carry that history with me, certainly, along with a personal history, you know, personal family history that comes out of the dictatorship in the 1960s. So all of that, for me, is processed through my work. Writing is is one of the ways that I deal with my feelings, deal with history, with personal history, with more of the communal history, with immigration. So I've, I don't feel like you're the character that says that in the book. I, I've had fewer troubles than that, than that character. But I still carry that feeling. I think we can learn from a lot of painful moments. And, and writing is, is, is for me one of those ways to actually see a situation better, to hopefully come out of it with a, a bit more insight than, I, than when I came in. Many people leave their countries for a better life in America. My own grandparents did that. However, you came to a place with a political history of persecuting your homeland. How have you come to reconcile the good with the bad? You know, I often tell people, um, because a lot of people don't realize that the U.S. occupied Haiti in the tw- at the beginning of the 20th century. So from 1915 to 1934, Haiti was occupied by the United States, and it was a very painful occupation. And, and so I often tell people that, you know, before we came here, the U.S. came to us. And <laughs> I think it's certainly a, a mixed bag, and, and certainly there are painful moments that continued. For example, my uncle was detained by immigration and died in immigration custodies. And I, but I've also had family members and I've had also enjoyed the benefits of certain opportunities that come with living here. So it's always, you know, I, we carry the duality, you know, mm-hmm. uh, sort of both the good and bad of that experience. And I think that 
That's true for a lot of immigrants. And, you know, there's so much that sacrifice to be here, to stay here, to build a future for the next generation, that it's always bittersweet. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us about the circumstances of your arrival in Brooklyn? I think you were age 12 when you came here. Yes, I was born in, in Haiti. Then my mom moved to the, my father moved first to the U.S. when I was two. And then my mother when I was four. And they were undocumented here in the U.S. for those, for eight years in between. And at some point they got their papers, their um, straighten out their status and were able to send for my brother and me who, who they had left with my uncle and I was 12 at that time so I moved to the U.S. to Brooklyn, New York when I was 12. You write about how Haitians at that time this was the early 1980s were under suspicion for spreading the AIDS virus and that really had a profound impact on you at school. Well at that time you know in the 1980s the early 1980s especially, people were just starting to talk about AIDS and Haitians were the only groups of people who were identified on the list by nationality. So it was heroin addicts, hemophiliac, homosexuals, um, Haitians. And so it was a very difficult time even, you know, for, for kids, you were teased in school, you were called names. And for adults, it was a lot of people lost their jobs and because no people didn't really know that much about the disease and how it was spread. And so there were a lot of rumors and fear around the virus, you know, the HIV virus. So being uh, identified as part of a group of people, you know, based on their nationalities, you know, there was a lot of profiling and it was a, a very painful time. And to, to see the adults in one's life as well as, as the children, you know, suffer through that was, was very agonizing. I can imagine. And you also say that you did not have many books in your home growing up, yet you started to write at the age of nine and became an award-winning novelist. What family stories from your childhood did did you carry with you? We had uh, very few books, but there were a lot of storytellers in my family. So I heard a lot of stories and a lot of folk tales, but also, you know, stories that have to do with the U.S. occupation, things that happened during that time. And so there were a lot of oral storytelling. To me, that was beneficial because the story was different every time someone else told it. Whether it was a story you've heard before, it became endued with the personality of the storyteller. So it was very, I think it fed, you know, when people ask who my writing teachers were, I always say that the first, the storytellers of my childhood, I mean, the way they told stories really had an effect on how I ended up telling stories later on. As you stress, Haiti has a harrowing history, but it is also a source of joy and music and art and spirituality. Could you tell our listeners how this love of art and music is reflected in Giselle and Isabel, the twins in your new novel, Untwine? The twins represent sort of the next generation of this family. They're not new arrivals and even their parents are not so new arrivals. You know, they've had children in this in this country. So in the in the scenario in which you have my parents and me and my my children, they would be like they would be sort of my brother's children. My brother's children are older. My children are still um 
not teenagers yet, but my my I have nieces and nephews who are teenagers, so they would be of that generation, and they're really straddling um, sort of this hyphenated identity uh, of being Haitian and being American, and they're very much surrounded by Haitian culture. They go to Haiti. Um, and and to them, it's you know they have a good time there with their grandparents. They they also have this life in America. So I really wanted to show that generation, my my um, nieces and nephews' generation, and to my children's generation, and how they're handling you know sort of all the beautiful things that are passed on to them from the culture. And I think parents at that age sort of stress that the beautiful things, but also this history that is that's painful, that is also there. So they get both the, the mix of that. And at the same time, they're also trying to live their own lives, trying to fit in, trying, you know, trying to figure out who they are and dealing with a very painful losses at the same time. Also that survivor's guilt that is so prevalent in the book, that seems to be something perhaps you've carried yourself with all that you've experienced. In the book, the survival's guilt is actual. You know, I think there, it's it's led by something concrete. You know, an incident mm-hmm. that happens in the book. But I think um, that feeling of of being detached, of being separated um, from one's homeland or from one's loved ones, especially when painful things are happening, is very real. You know, it's very. Uh, it's something that a lot of people who have left people behind under any circumstances, it's something that we all feel. It's certainly something that I have felt, especially at times when Haiti's going through a very painful period and, you know, in time. It seems so raw in the book to have twins, you know, a twin who loses her sister and then feels a part of herself is utterly gone and she has to recreate who she is. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there are parallels for that in the immigration experience and in other experiences, you know, having, being twin, being, being merged almost with someone else or having a very strong connection that's then ruptured for whatever reason is such a powerful uh, and painful experience at the same time. On this subject, you started, this is, I think, your third YA novel. Is that right? Well, the others were more middle grade. I but see. this is my, it's my third book for young adults. I wrote before two books with Scholastic for younger readers. One was in the Royal Diaries series, which is a series that I adore. And I sort of <laughs> begged in, you know, um, and I wrote about Anakauna who was a, an Arawak uh, princess who then became a leader of her people. And I wrote a book called Behind the Mountains in, a, in another series about new arrivals to the United States. And those books were both in diary form, but this was my first plunge into YA, writing for young adults, which I think is it's also a book that adults and adults have read and, and um, have enjoyed as well. But it's ironically a book that I started a very long time ago when I was in graduate school and thought that I would write more YA. And I started writing a different version of it and then put it away. 
And then a couple of years ago when my mom was sick, I started uh, writing on about, you know, on about just picked up the characters again and, and started uh, writing the book. And I think it was a way of also preparing myself for, uh, for, for a loss, for losing my mother who didn't get to see this book published because she, she passed away during the whole process of the book coming to publication. Oh, I'm so sorry. Thank you. About the twins, where did they come from in your imagination? I've always been really intrigued by twins. In a lot of, um, I think, cultures, uh, African and African diaspora cultures, there's a, and maybe other cultures as well, there's a, a kind of mythical aura around twins. And when I was a kid in Haiti, we knew a set of twins and people were always very respectful of them. Like you weren't supposed to upset them. You know, it was, they, they just were a little more special than everybody else. Like it was even believed that they had sort of special powers and, and their twin gods and, and, and just, so I think just in many different cultures, there's a sort of a, a kind of mysticism around twins that I, that's always attracted me. And there've been twins in my life you know, um, twin children of friends, and now my brother has some twins. They're very, they're very young. Uh, he and his wife have twin daughters. So, but I've always been intrigued by twins and, and that whole connection. And so, and I don't have a sister. I and I've really always wanted invented one. <laughs> and yeah, and so I mean, I it would be cool to give myself one and take her away. But I, but I. <laughs> have always really marveled that sort of that relationship of what it would be like to not just have a, a twin, but also a sister, you know, someone who I guess in my own way of idealizing I, that I thought would be like, Oh, my true soulmate, sort of like mm-hmm. a copy of my soul. And, and so I, um, I think that the twins, Giselle and Isabel come out of that sort of uh, really trying to imagine what that relationship would be like, and then, um, and then, sadly, have that be taken away. Right now, with your own daughters, what do you observe about sisters that surprises you the most, or that gives you the most joy? I have to say, before even before my daughters, a little bit of my bubble was popped. I remember <laughs> once I I was walking down the street with my friend, and out of nowhere, her sister was like. Her sister came and said, take this off now, because she was wearing her sister's clothes. <laughs> and if she didn't have a good coat, <laughs> she would have been naked on the street. I thought, oh, it's not all roses, you know. Um, sometimes there are, there are tensions between sisters. So I, um, But my, my daughters are now 11 and 7, and I really, I think it's, I think it's a beautiful relationship. And it's just the two of them. So they really kind of have to deal with each other. And, and of course, they have squabbles, but they really, really um, love each other. And it's funny, if one is away for like a day, the other one really misses her. So I really, I hope, and I hope they, they remain like that, that they, you know, they, they, they get each other's back. I think that's the most important thing when you have a sibling. I have three brothers, and, and really, I used to tell them, and it's true, they, it's thanks to them that I, you know, I, I do, I still idealize the idea of having a sister, but my brothers more than made up for it because they were really wonderful brothers and, and they always had my back. And I think that's what um, is wonderful about 
a sibling relationship. It's not the same as the relationship you have with your parents. It's not the same as the one you have with your friends. It's just a, a combination of all those things and, and more. It's, and if you're lucky, it's a, it's a beautiful friendship at the same time. Absolutely. What do your daughters enjoy reading or what do you enjoy reading to them? They read quite a bit. They go from, you know, my um, youngest is sort of a baby fashionista. So she loves <laughs> any, any kind of book that has a little girl with uh, who is a fashionista, she just tears through. Um, so she's just reading now this series with uh, four little girls, Coco, Mika, Lulu. I think you guys published them. Um <laughs> And um, my oldest is, is, she's just ran right through to sort of the vampire apocalyptic. That's the stage she's in right now <laughs> and she, at 11. So I, I really tried. I, I wish like, you know, I wish they were reading Tolstoy right now, but I try to kind of let them read what they, what they want to read because I think you kind of also have to, you know, enjoy the pleasure, like, that it's to, to read at whatever age to feel like you're reading things that you love, things that you can't wait to pick up again. And, and so they, they read quite a bit and I try not too much to force that. You know, I, I make suggestions, but I try not to force them too much. Oh, that's great. That's the kind of advice we give around here. What do they think about mom's writing career? It's funny because I, I just finished a, a, a nonfiction book that I'm doing with Grey Wolf Press. It's a book on grief. And and every time, you know, I, I do a draft because sometimes mom has to disappear to kind of, you know, really wrap up something. And and every time I'm done with a draft of that book, I'm like, ah, oh, the book is done. And so on Sunday, the book was done again for <laughs> <laughs> the third time. And I was saying that in my my youngest said, don't tell us until it's like in print because you're going to say it's done again. Oh, that's adorable. So, yeah, so they kind of, they're getting to see how the, the sausage is made, if you will, so the romance <laughs> of it is gone. But they still get, you know, last year we went to, um, they came with me to the American Library Association conference and they got to meet, you know, authors they really enjoy. And so it was really interesting for them to see um, other authors and I and I could see they, them wondering like what the process of these people are because often for the children of authors you know the process means a lot of absence you kind of have to disappear at inconvenient times at times but they love to have seen me talk about something I'm starting and then to actually see the final product I think that's usually their favorite part. You say too that Art is dangerous. You really have to pull a big part of yourself out to create it. That creative struggle, how do you see them taking that in and understanding that? I come from a culture and I come from a time in in Haiti too uh, where it was dangerous to be a writer. Writers were put in jail. and and, And there are places in the world where that still happens. So there is that, the actuality of that. Um, but there's also a part of it that's probably truer for my children, that they're more likely to face as both writers and readers that were people, you put yourself on the line each time you, you do share something out there. I think especially in the time that we live in where people react so quickly and, you know, are so cool sometimes about what people produce and, 
And so I, I think there's a, a an extra vulnerability in creating any kind of art and just sharing your deepest thoughts. So they may not, you know, in their generation also living here in this country at the moment, unless that really drastically changes with the with what's to come, <laughs> but uh, they don't necessarily have to worry about being arrested mm-hmm. at the moment for what they're writing. But I think there's another kind of danger of feeling vulnerable, of feeling exposed of, or exposing oneself to troll and, and women, you know, young women, especially getting threatened, getting bullied or getting, you know, having threats made against them for sharing their stories. I think that's sort of a new vulnerability in danger that young writers, you know, mm-hmm. young people who are reading or, you know, face these days. Were you bullied as a kid? We didn't really talk so much about it as bullying. I don't even think the term was used so much when I was a, a child. But because when I came to the United States, I didn't speak English. So we really stood out in the in the school where I was. I was in a class where we, all of us, were new arrivals, non-English speakers. And because of uh, what we discussed earlier, where people would call us boat people because there were people coming by boat to the U.S. and it was in the news. And because of the issue with AIDS, so um, where people would say, oh, you're a boat person, you have AIDS, and they would, uh, kids would hit us, you know, me and my friends who were in the new arrivals class, we were hit, we were called names, but it wasn't called bullying at that mm-hmm. time, but we were treated pretty badly. And, and for me, it made me really um, withdraw, if you will. And, and I think reading, you know, having books to read, losing myself in reading and doing, starting to do some writing really helped me, really helped a lot with my self-esteem and ultimately really with my um, ability to to come through all of that, to, to survive all of that. What kinds of books did you gravitate toward? Every book that had like a little girl, especially a little black girl on the cover, <laughs> I was, I was, I really gravitated towards. I, because I, I was looking for a kind of mirror to see, to see people like myself. And then I was also looking sort of for a window, a kind of escape so I read, the first book I read in English was Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. I read Rosa Guy's The Friends. I read, really, like, and I read a lot of Judy Broom because they were about, especially, she's the one, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. And all the ones that were about these little girls. And every every book I could find that had some sort of like an unusual little girl in it, I, you know, I was really drawn to these kinds of characters because... I think I was still trying to find out what it's like to be a young girl in America. You know, what are other girls doing? Carson McCullough's member of a wedding. We read that in class. And initially I didn't understand all of it, but I knew it was about a little girl who sort of was trying to make herself heard. And eventually, you know, we, we just went through all these books that we had to read for school, but some stood out because I... I was so much trying to find that kind of anchor, you know, trying to find voices that could have been mine. Your quotes are so beautiful. I'm sorry, but there's another one that really resonates for me. You talked about writing novels and how it broadens one's mind and expands one's heart. You say, 
you cannot walk away anymore and say, I don't know. That seems to me to be such a powerful statement in the times we're living with racial discrimination, inequality, and injustice, and even the persecution that has been faced by Haiti or other countries at the hands of the U.S. How do you try to, how, what advice do you have for teachers who are trying to sensitize their own students? Well, I think um, often when we read literature, right, when we read an actual story in which an individual is going through things, sometimes it's even more powerful than reading statistics or reading facts because we we become really emotionally involved in that story. So I think narrative, um, whether it's through a novel, whether it's a story the teacher is telling, is a very powerful tool in, in educating young people about things, you know, telling a story, because we all have a story. And some of us have a story too that we want to share, that we would like to share, that we'd like to see validated. and and validated in the echoes, you know, of other stories that we read, whether it's about enslaved people or Japanese internment or the depression or a young girl in Haiti doing the occupation or a young girl coming to the U.S. I think some of those stories resonate. Amy 10 resonated with me because I, I felt like even though culturally the women of the Jailah Club, they were very different than me, but they had emotions. You know, they were going through things emotionally that were similar to some of the women I knew. So I think literature sort of can be used as a kind of bridge story and having the opportunity to share our stories. Uh, some of my memorable, most memorable teachers would do that. They would allow us this opportunity to write our own stories. And after we had read a book or read a short story or read an essay, then you could write your own and and there was really a, a powerful strength to that. Then once you know something with your heart, you know, sometimes we know a lot of things with our head. We, we can know a lot of facts. But once you know something with your heart, it's sort of imprinted on it. And that's when you can't say you don't know because you've, you've experienced it with that person because you've experienced their story. So true. Speaking of your own story, I would love for you to read an excerpt from Untwine. I think it so beautifully conveys the bond between the twin sisters and the loss, the agonizing loss that Giselle feels. Just like the evening of the crash, she's dressed in one of her formal orchestra uniforms, a white blouse and pencil skirt. The night of the concert, she also wanted to wear one of her many beaded bracelets, but no jewelry was allowed. Even the non-shiny kind was considered too distracting. She also couldn't wear anything shiny in her hair, and she's not wearing anything shiny in the coffin either. Perhaps to best hide her wounds, what's left of her braids are bunched up together and pulled up close to her face, their edges resting on her shoulders. I don't know how she would have felt about the uniform. Does this mean I'll have to play the flute for all eternity, she might have said. She would have liked all the makeup, though. Stage mask galore, she might have said. But even with all of the makeup, she still looks like me. It's like looking at me. I know exactly what I look like dead. I look like Isabel. Thank you, Edwidge. It's been wonderful speaking with you. Thank you very much for having me. 
And thank you for joining us and for sharing in our mission at Scholastic, where we believe that the right book in a child's hands can open a world of possible. Special thanks to producer Megan K. Safer and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberle. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.